Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about building closure libraries with Peter Teosanis, the creator of Sente, Tombra, Carmine, Nippy, Tufty, and many more. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hi, Daniel. It's nice to be on. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to have you on. Peter, you were probably one of the first open source library maintainers I interacted with when I started using Clojure mm-hmm. a few years ago now. Sente was, I think, from memory at least, the first sort of major time that I was using your work. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of saw that and then kind of looked around and saw, oh, wow, there's like there's this whole universe of uh, Peter Tennis libraries. So tell me, like, We'll go into each of them in detail maybe mm-hmm. afterwards, but tell me, like, where did they all come from? Like, how are you so prolific? And what's the sort of background story of these? Basically, when I started using Clojure was pre-Clojure 1.0. And I remember at the time I was looking, I was working on a new project and I hadn't selected a language yet. And I'd always wanted to work with a Lisp. So at the time I was evaluating Arc, which was something that uh, Paul Graham was working on at the time. I was looking at Common Lisp. And there was this thing called Clojure, which at the time there was a small Google group. I think there were a couple hundred users on there. And initially I figured the default choice would be something like Common Lisp. And I was starting to kind of sketch out a prototype with Common Lisp. But then I was taking a closer look at Clojure and um, the original videos of Rich explaining some of the, uh, the design thinking behind the language. And just more and more it started to make sense to me that this was really promising. And even though it was relatively immature, and I think certainly you have to acknowledge that any any new programming tool or language especially, statistically, they're always likely to peter out after a couple months or years, right? So there's there's no guarantee that it's still going to be around in a while. So anyway, suffice to say, I liked Clojure enough that I was happy to take the risk even at that time to kind of go all in on that for the next project. But inevitably, one of the things that you run into when you're using such a new language is there's a lot of things missing. I remember at that time, there were I think it was also pre-version one of Ring, and I kept running into some issues with the earlier versions of that, which makes sense given how early the state of all the libraries were back then. And anyway, I kept running into things where I thought, all right, I want to use Redis, for example. And the Redis clients that I was trying to use were all breaking down in one way or another in production, right? They weren't scaling very well, or they had issues with the thread pool or something that I was running into that was causing issues. So at first, my open source basically just consisted of trying to fix things with pre-existing libraries and uh, fiddling with them that way and trying to see, all right, can I find out what the problem is with this particular library? Can I fix that? And anyway, I guess that just started to snowball. And in a way, starting with a new language like Clojure was at the time is a really exciting space to be a library author because there's so much low-hanging fruit, right? Yeah. There might not be a stable Redis client, which is usable in production. So if you write something however bad... It will, you know, it will get some traction. And that's ultimately, that's one of the most satisfying things, I think, from working on open source is just getting the sense that people actually get some value out of what you're doing and they get to use it to solve problems. And that's never more true or that's never easier than when you're looking at a brand new ecosystem where almost everything still needs to be built. Closure, obviously, one of the selling points is that it interrupts so well with Java, which means you've got the whole Java language ecosystem. But I think one of the things that mm. people figured out quite early on is that while it's great to be able to use Java libraries and you can absolutely use them and use them well and use them easily, there is still a difference both in terms of the ergonomics and in terms of, let's say, some of the conceptual idioms that an idiomatic closure library would offer that, generally speaking, the Java equivalent wouldn't. Um, so whether it's a case of wrapping libraries or writing stuff in pure closure, there was a lot of room, there was a lot of scope to do interesting things and try to figure out, okay, what would a closure version of a Redis client look like, for example? 
And uh, all of my libraries have basically been that. It's been at one time or another, I needed a thing. And uh, I looked around and the things that already existed, uh, either something didn't exist or what did exist didn't fully satisfy the particular requirements I had. So then I'd go off and, and build it. And that's that's effectively it. I've got a lot of other stuff that I've written over the years as well that I'd also still like to publish as open source. But, you know, writing the code and releasing a library are two very different things. And uh, the library involves a lot of maintenance and documentation and packaging and uh, all sorts of other concerns. So usually what I do is I try to find the sweet spot where there's things that I can release that are not too much effort and that hopefully will be useful for people and try to sort of go sort my output in that way, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's a long answer um. to your question. <laughs> it's a good answer. But basically things I needed and then I wrote them as, as I needed them. Uh -huh. What was the was the first one Carmine then? That's a good question. I think Carmine may have been the first one in earnest. I, either Carmine or Timber, my logging library. I think one of those was probably the first. And I think that probably coincided. Uh, Carmine and Nippy probably coincided since they, they had sort of a shared source. Nippy's the serialization library, and I wanted serialization for objects in Redis. So the two of them kind of grew at around the same time. Gotcha. Well, maybe we can dive into Nippy first then. So tell us, like, how does Nippy work? What is it? Why is it interesting? Why didn't you just serialize Java, <laughs> Java objects or write closure to a string? Like, those are all kind of, let's say, obvious, perhaps not the best options, but, you know, explain what are the trade-offs and... What does Nippy do? Yeah, yeah, sure. So Nippy is basically, it's a fast, pure closure-ish, I'll explain. But it's, it's, it's a closure, anyway, it's an idiomatic closure uh, serialization library, which understands all of closure's data types, right? So you can give it maps and sets and vectors and all sorts of other more obscure things, and it will just know how to serialize those things in any case, it's fast because I needed something that would be fast enough to do serialization on the fly for things like uh, for Carmine and other databases for Faraday and a few other instances I had where there were sort of important performance requirements. Um, the way that Nippy works is it's basically just a very thin wrapper around the Java data manipulation stuff. So I don't remember what the particular class is, but uh, it gives you some facilities to write bytes and write shorts and uh, write strings and write uh, byte arrays and this sort of thing. And Nippy's implementation is actually super duper simple. Um, effectively, what it is, is a um, freezable protocol, right, implemented using closures protocols. And we will define implementations for all of the core closure types. Right, so we're going to um, extend the protocol to these various types and say, all right, for a set, what you're going to do is you're going to iterate through all the elements of the set. You're going to write, let's say, the size of the set, an identifier to say, all right, the next item in the stream is a set. It's this long. And then you go through them all and sort of recursively do the next step. It's a pretty simple thing. I would say, actually, it's probably one of the simplest libraries I have in terms of the architecture, like there's some complexity there for optimizations and for compression and encryption and that sort of thing. But the actual, the bones of it are very, very simple. And I think it would probably be readable to anyone, including beginners. At essence, it's a very, very simple thing. It's just a protocol for freezing. You call that protocol and then it will sort of drop down to the various implementations, depending on the type, something like that. Nice. So Carmine and Faraday, which is your DynamoDB Correct. library, both use... Nippy. So tell us about what is Carmine, why, what is it useful for mm -hmm. over, say, you know, the Java mm -hmm. Redis client? Uh, so Carmine is, again, I would say idiomatic closure client for Redis. And 
in many ways is um, similar to something like Jetis or the various Java clients for Redis, but you're getting a lot of the niceties of closure API approach. You're not dealing with I'm trying to think. It's been many years since I've actually looked looked at the Java clients. Effectively, the way that I tend to approach writing libraries is generally I don't look too much at what other people are doing, but I just take it sort of from first principles. How does this thing make sense to me? How would I do this? What would be the obvious thing to do? I sketch it out that way. And then usually at that time, I'll take a look at what others are doing to compare and see, all right, maybe I've missed something. There's a better way of approaching this. Maybe there's some idea that can be borrowed, or maybe I'm completely down the wrong track. But anyway, I guess the simplest way of putting it is Carmine is what to me seemed a sensible way of approaching the Redis API in Clojure. In particular, one of the things that's really powerful about Redis is the way that it uses pipelining. So because Redis is very fast, often the bottleneck in performance with working with Redis is actually the TCP round trip to get your request to the Redis server and back. So already from, I think, version two days or maybe even version one days, Redis has, has had a pipelining feature, which basically means you send a bunch of commands at once and it executes them in serial and it sends back all the responses at once so that you're effectively using one TCP round trip for n number of requests, something like that. And it turns out that that actually works really well with the structuring and closure because you can do something like say, all right, I'm going to open this connection I want to send 100 commands, then I want to get back the responses to those 100 commands and destructure them as a vector so that I can access the various responses individually, something like that. And I think that, in my opinion at least, uh, Carmine's Redis experience is one of the nicest that I've found anywhere in any language because of the syntax that Clojure offers. Right, so it's it's a good fit for Redis. I'll put it to that way, and Carmine allows you, let's say, to take advantage of... Uh, of areas where the closure syntax, let's say, gels well with uh, the capabilities of Redis, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And Faraday was the other, you know, I mean, DynamoDB is, has some similarities, I guess, to Redis and depending on how you look at it, of course. But what was the story? Like, why did you need, when did you want to use Faraday? Or what mm -hmm. was the genesis of that? So uh, Faraday is a library I'm actually not actively maintaining at the moment. There's a, there's another gentleman who's, who's looking after that and has been doing a great job for many years. Um, Faraday is something that I actually never used in production myself. So there was a time that I was experimenting. I'm always working on projects of some sort. So I'm trying to solve, obviously, the minimal number of problems that I can, because working for myself, you know, if, you've, if you're one person, you need to try and not tackle too many problems. So any, any problem avoided is, is best avoided. And anyway, DynamoDB looked very interesting at the time to me, being this hosted platform and promising dependable IO performance and so on. And I like the general approach, as I understood it, to the scaling characteristics and so on. So Faraday came out of basically a proof of concept of an application that I was working on that I ended up abandoning. And um, it was just something where I looked at the other clients at the time. I think there was one by James Reeves that was called Rotary, which um, formed the original basis for Faraday. I was having some problems with that at scale for the prototype. And anyway, as was often the case with many of these other libraries, it was just a matter of necessity. I wanted something to work. In the end, I just hacked something together for Faraday, and that ended up being used by a number of people, even though I didn't use it in the end. I kept it running for uh, several years until uh, the other maintainer took over most recently. Right. It's still an interesting service, but I can't evaluate in detail not having ever used it in, in earnest. 
But I'd still actually like to come back to it at some point. I, anytime I'm looking at a new project, it's still always in the back of my head. Maybe I can find uh-huh. an excuse to, to actually try this one in, in Dynamo. Yep, I know that feeling of how can I you know, find this technology home in this the next project. Exactly. Definitely have done that before. All right, tell us about Sentai. Sentai, mm-hmm. I feel like, is maybe one of the ones where you get a lot of people perhaps new to Clojure or, yeah, I was quite active with it a few years ago now and watched the issue tracker and mm-hmm. you tend to get issues from people who are new to Clojure who maybe, you know, they were trying to do something with WebSockets and maybe didn't quite understand mm-hmm. how Sente worked or how Clojure worked or, yep. you know, there was just like a lot of essentially support requests yep. disguised as bug reports. Mm-hmm. So tell us like what was the genesis of Sente and yep. how's that, you know, that's uh, had a pretty active life or it had a lot of development over its lifetime. I feel. Yeah. Senta came about many years ago. I was working on a project which was sort of a social network for making friends. It still actually exists in, in a form at the moment. And the first version of that was old HTTP style where you would type messages to each other, but you would submit a, cha- a message through a post request. Then I don't remember what the mechanics were, but I think you would actually need to refresh the page and then you would see the new message in the list and so on. And I had a lot mm-hmm. of people requesting a more dynamic kind of right. chat interface, right? So they could see their friends when they were typing and they would get the message right away and that sort of thing. And again, it was at the time I looked at the alternatives for closure and nothing that was available really satisfied my needs. So I ended up, again, just doing what seemed natural to me. I thought, all right, what kind of API would I want for something like this? And Sente is a relatively interesting one in terms of the API design because it sits at a relatively unusual level. What I mean by that, it's not low level enough that you're dealing with the protocols yourself, but it's not high level enough that you're able to completely ignore the complexities of a real-time app design, right? You still need to think about... Mm various things, how you're going to deal with messages arriving out of order in terms of uh, your application state. I'm I'm not talking about like at the TCP level, but at sort of a a logical application design point of view, you need there's certain kinds of things you need to think of when designing a real-time web application that are non-trivial and sometimes non-obvious. And anyway, Sentai more or less leaves that stuff up to you, and it handles more of the sort of low medium level stuff. So it's handling automatic connections, it's handling differences between if you have Ajax, if you have uh, WebSocket support in your clients, or if you don't have WebSocket support, you get the same kind of interface. Basically, it paves over some of the differences between Ajax-style callback API and the kind of API you traditionally get with WebSockets. And again, it just went in a direction with this is how I would want something like this to work myself. And that's just the, the direction I built it out. As to your question about the support and so on, so this is definitely a major part of writing open source software. As I mentioned before, actually writing the software is very often not close to being the most significant part of work involved, especially for libraries that are intended for use by beginners or libraries which inevitably going to be attractive to beginners for one reason or another, or there might be a large market for that particular library. Maybe it's an interesting problem domain, whatever the case, you are inevitably going to be spending a lot of your time on documentation and support. And the two are inverse to some extent, because the better your documentation, generally speaking, hopefully the less support you have. But it's not quite inverse, because it's also the case that the better your documentation, the more people are going to come to it. (laughs) And inevitably, some proportion of people are always going to have questions. But that's been one of the the big takeaways uh, for me with, with my work in open source is just 
being more mindful of in practice, how much work is this particular thing going to be to maintain in the long term? Right now, for example, I'm working on a um, data security framework, uh, which I mentioned to you a little bit earlier on. And it's a bit of a scary thing to release because I'm specifically targeting beginners with this one. It's a problem domain where in particular, unless you are a domain expert, it's very, very difficult to get into. And one of the frustrations I've had in that domain before is that trying to approach the problem is like running into a brick wall. And you've got to immediately do a lot of research and everything is fraught with dangers in all kinds of directions. And anyway, so what I'm trying to do with this data security thing is make a friendlier path for beginners to get into securing data on their closure applications. We, we can talk about that a bit more later if you like. But certainly one of the things I've been really conscious about is if you're making the conscious decision to say, all right, this is going to be a big and oriented library, immediately the amount of work that goes into the documentation and the support and the tutorials and thinking through, all right, what is sharp edges now in the API, that ultimately ends up dominating your time. And there is also a very real concern that you need to have, which is how much ongoing maintenance and support is this particular thing going to require? And can I actually sustain that? Because when you're supporting lots of different libraries, you know, when I release a library, I want to be able to effectively promise that there's some level of minimal support that will that will come with that, right? And I'll, I'll keep it maintained and I'll keep it documented. And as issues come up, I'll get them sorted out. And as you pile on more and more libraries, in a sense, that becomes more difficult because now you're maintaining, you know, 10 things, 15 things, 20 things. So what I've needed to do over the years is find ways of trying to make that process more efficient. One of the things that I've been doing recently with the help of Closures Together is tackling some of the longer term stuff that hasn't been exactly exciting, uh, but that is useful for this is really getting to the bottom of how can I make the documentation processes more efficient for me so that I can write them easier, so that I can maintain them easier, so that I can keep them consistent with one another easier, consistent with updates more easily, so that I can put out more open source and so that I can keep the current stuff more, let's say, at a higher level of quality. So anyway, support comes with it. And for me, that's a really important thing that maintainers need to think about because just throwing a, a library over the wall is one thing. But I think for people to really get value out of it, you need to actually be able to anticipate a little bit where are people going to have problems and ultimately commit as well to helping see them through so that they can actually use it properly in production. If I'm not confident that I'll be able to do that with the library, I'd rather not release it, to be honest. So for me, it's part of the responsibility and it's also in a way part of the fun. I mean, it can be frustrating, of course. There's aspects of it which can be frustrating, but at the same time, it's also very fulfilling. Like part of the reason I got into open source is because of how much I've benefited from open source. The fact that Clojure was open source, all of the stuff that I use is open source. It's, it's incredible how this whole ecosystem works and being able to feel like you're a part of that in some way and being able to help people a little bit, you know, in whatever way is, uh, I think, a big part of the satisfaction as well, I think, for most open source authors. And certainly for me, that's a big part of why I do it. As frustrating as it can sometimes be from day to day, you know, as with anything. Mm -hmm. So one of the libraries, which I feel like maybe everyone using your programs eventually comes back to is Encore, mm -hmm. because it, it sort of features heavily in, in all of the other ones. It's, it's quite viral. It tends to insert itself. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so tell me about Encore. And you know, I guess it's it's both your utility library, but then many other people's utility library. So well. um, interestingly, Encore is definitely my most widely deployed library, but it's the one that people probably use the least. So 
Basically, I've never really advertised Encore. I don't even have it listed usually when I'm talking about my open source output and so on. I don't talk about it as a as a library for public use. I intentionally don't have a change log on there. I uh, don't have a, the usual kind of usage guide and that sort of thing. I'm trying to dissuade people from using it unless they're confident about looking at the source code. The way that Encore came about was basically, again, through necessity, Back in the day, I was writing a lot of Clojure. I was writing a lot of Clojure libraries. I started to notice that there were a lot of things that I wanted in different libraries, right? Especially back in the day, original Clojure, the core library takes a conservative approach to rolling out new features, which I really deeply appreciate. I think that's absolutely the perfect decision. I'm super happy at how slowly Clojure introduces new things into Clojure Core. I think that's absolutely the right choice. But ultimately, what it's meant is that sometimes there's things that I really wanted that I use again and again and again, and I want it in this library, and I want it in that library, and I want it in another library. And instead of re-implementing it six times in six different libraries, I started pulling some of this stuff out into a shared library, which was basically a set of core things that I use frequently across other libraries. And that started growing over time. And um, in particular, I think once once ClojureScript came along, back then I was using uh, CLJX, which was the original mechanism for doing cross-platform yeah. code before CLJC was a thing. And anyway, at that time, there were quite a few differences between Clojure JVM and Clojure JavaScript. And I was writing a lot of cross-platform code, both in libraries and from own applications. And it was sometimes a bit of a bear implementing all of these differences between, all right, this is what the Clojure script code is going to look like. This is what the Clojure code is going to look like. And a lot of the time, anyway, there was low-hanging fruit for having some sort of cross-platform core utilities that behaved sensibly on both platforms with, with a consistent interface, or that would pave over some of the differences. There are a number of differences today still between Clojure Closure script and closure in the API that can again trip you up a little bit when you're when you're writing cross-platform code or cross-platform libraries, things like that. And Encore is effectively just the set of utilities that I go to again and again with a particular focus on uh, cross-platform uh, consistency. I mean, it's come to encompass all kinds of things. Uh, oof, that would be a long conversation. There's a lot of very cool stuff in there, but in general, the downside, as I sort of state in the README, is it's not officially supported in the same way that, for example, I support Sente. People who use Encore, and there are a number of people that use Encore, but it's effectively for advanced users who are happy taking a look at the source code or looking at the doc strings to understand how to use things. A lot of the older stuff, especially, don't even have doc strings. You would need to look at the source to understand what it's doing. It's designed primarily for my use, and other people get some value out of it as well, I think. But that's not the main goal. That is the kind of thing, if I had more time, I would happily go and, let's say, officially release either parts of Encore or clean it up so that it were in the kind of shape that I would want it to be for a publicly consumable library. But that's a lot of work. And again, I've got so many other things that I want to release. That's just not top of my priorities at the moment. But there's cool stuff in there. So I'm looking at the source now, and it's mm. about 6,500 lines. So probably your largest single source file. Is it the largest no. project as well? No, no, no. No? No. So I have the social network chat app that I mentioned. Of course, um, yes. That was, that's called Woosoup, W-U-S-O-U-P dot com. It's still, still actually live. I haven't touched the code in like 15 years, so please, please don't judge it harshly. <laughs> um but I've kept it running because people are still using it. Anyway, that at its height, I think, was about 50,000 lines of closure. 
And that included what was at the time, I think, a fairly sophisticated machine learning component, which was effectively looking at people's conversations, tokenizing them, doing statistical analysis, similar to spam filtering. So it was originally inspired by Paul Graham's Plan for Spam article on Bayesian spam filtering. But basically, there's a Bayesian learning process underneath, and that system was all quite generic. That's one of the things I would have wanted to release as a library. Anyway, that was about 50,000 lines, and I've had other projects... I think that probably are around the largest, maybe is about 70,000 for one project. Encore as a single source file might be the largest, but not by a huge margin. I think Wusup, the one of the algorithmic, one of the core algorithmic namespaces was also probably something in the order of uh, four or 5,000 lines, something like that. And obviously there's pros and cons to that, right? I... <laughs> I always add the caution that if you're looking at Encore code in particular, be mindful that the way I've written a lot of the code in Encore is not necessarily the way that I would advocate for other people to write code in other situations for several reasons. One of the objectives I had with Encore is that I want it to be really easy to depend on. So I want to be able to pull in dowenso.encore and that's it. I don't need to worry about what namespace different things are in. I just want to have access to them. It's kind of a core library because it's sitting at such a low level position in a lot of projects which are performance sensitive. It's written with often performance as a number one or near to number one objective. And again, I'm not worrying so much about how readable it is for other people because it's mostly for my own purposes. So so long as it's readable to me, I'm happy. A lot of the ways that I've written stuff in there, I wouldn't write it that way if I was intending to work with others who might not be as experienced with closure, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a, a lot of macros yeah. in there. Looks like and nearly 100 from just a quick control F. And at the top of the file, there are these naming conventions, which I think it's really great you documented these because these show up in all of your libraries, I think, to some extent. I feel like this is maybe part of what makes a library feel like a Peter Tassanis library is like you look at the code and you you kind of see these things which are like very much your flavor of of flavor that's a diplomatic way of saying I have odd things in my code which is definitely true I wouldn't say that so um again I tend to be a bit odd in certain respects in lots of respects but one of them is I don't pay too much attention to what other people believe I kind of do what makes sense to me. And what happened uh, with my own code, again, I've written a lot of closure over the years. Like I think it's, it's probably approaching a million lines of closure now since way back when, and a lot of very big projects. And ultimately, I ended up finding things that work for me. And what I mean by that is I'm maintaining a huge amount of code. I'm putting out a huge amount of code. There are difficulties that come with writing large closure programs. I think um, closure... Like any other language, like any other tool, it has trade-offs. And Encore and the naming conventions and various other idioms, various other uh, patterns I've picked up over the years are effectively motivated by solving real problems that I've come across, right? So, for example, the naming conventions that I have in there in Encore, over the years I figured out, for example, it's really valuable over time to make a distinction in your naming between ref types and non-ref types. So if I have an atom, I'm going to end it, it has a postfix of an underscore, something like that. Or if I have uh, something which is nillable and I want to emphasize that because I might care in the context about whether it's currently nil or non-nil, I'll prefix it with a uh, question mark. There are cases in applications where uh, certain, let's say, aspects of the API are very expensive. I'll document that with a dollar sign. Again, one of the downsides of Clojure, or at least one of the challenges that I think one needs to be aware of with Clojure at scale, is obviously it's a dynamically typed language. And 
as your programs get larger and as your programs get more complicated and, and as more people use or interact with your code, convention becomes more and more important, particularly in a language which is not statically typed and which is relatively loose like Clojure is. And that looseness can be an advantage in many respects, but convention starts mattering more and more at scale. How you name your things for me, ultimately, it's not too important exactly how you name them, but it's important that you have a convention of some sort so that it's consistent, right? The consistency is more important than the details of precisely what you have. But anyway, Encore's style guide there is written down mostly for my own purposes, because it will sometimes happen that I'm on another project and I haven't encountered some specific situation in a while and I can't remember, okay, in what circumstance do I end this thing with a period or do I, well, if it both mutates and I want to draw attention to that, but it's also a bool, am I doing exclamation mark, question mark, or question mark, exclamation mark? You know, there's some degree of ambiguity in that, but I want it to be consistent. And I want it to be consistent across all of my work because, again, I maintain all of my work. So just from a very practical point of view, my life is easier maintaining my stuff if when I look at code for Project X and I look at code from Project Y, even if they're 15 years apart, it's using the same style. That makes my life a lot easier and it makes reading my own code 15 years from now much easier. And that's something I need to do for my sanity. So anyway, it's, it's along with everything else, just uh, shuttled off into, into Encore. I think that's, that's very helpful. Pro- probably terrifying for most people to look in there, I think. Well, I would recommend people at least look at that header when they're working with your libraries because it is pretty helpful to kind of get that sense of all of these variables, what they're trying to tell you. So tell us about the new project that you're working on. Yeah. So one of the things that's been really cool, this is the first year that I've had sponsorship, like formal sponsorship via Closures Together. And it's the most open source I've ever done in my life. I've been working full-time the whole year on open source. And one of the things that sponsorships enabled me to do is work on longer term things that require like a a proper pipeline, right? Like working on things and trying to figure out how are these going to connect and realizing that you're working on something now that might not connect back up for maybe six months or eight months or longer term projects where I'm working on things that will eventually come back to be components of Nippy, which will work in another position, connect to something else. Anyway, long story short, two of the things which I'm working on now, both should hopefully be due for release next month or at least um, November or December. One is called Temple. It's already on GitHub, but it's not officially out yet. I think there's a snapshot on Clojars. A temple spelled T-E-M-P-E-L. And that is a data security framework. Uh, this is the one that I mentioned. I'm being quite cautious about trying to understand how to frame the market for it. Like, who is this ideal for? What level of expertise are you going to need? And what level of commitment am I prepared to make for the documentation? At the moment, I'm describing it as beginner-oriented, but I have a lot more documentation to write in order for that to be really true. Anyway, what that is, it started out from original encryption stuff that I had in Nippy. So Nippy, the serialization library, currently has some capabilities for compression, the newest version now for Z standard, the Facebook compression, and also minor mode for some basic encryption. And one of the applications I worked on, sort of a side project many years ago, something called Quiver, Q-U-I-V-R-E, which is online right now, which is sort of a sex quiz kind of a thing. Anyway, one of the... Oh, I'm trying to keep this brief because it's a, it's a long story. Anyway, long term, I have some ideas for data management platform that potentially could go in a few different directions. And I would want to explore the idea under what circumstances could you potentially keep users' data encrypted at rest so that even the site maintainer doesn't have access to the data and still do something interesting with that data. 
Because generally speaking, once you encrypt something, it's like, all right, well, now it's encrypted. It's a blob. No longer useful to you once it's encrypted. So all sites which do something with your data while you're not there effectively have your data sitting at rest in an unencrypted form. And I was kind of playing with this idea. One of the ideas I had was, I mean, this goes a little bit off the topic now, but something like a dating site, but where you own your own data and where you effectively fill out a profile for your own data once. And then there's an API to connect to third-party dating sites, which can effectively gain access to certain kinds of queries against your data, but in kind of a locked form so that you're still in control of your data and you can kind of terminate access whenever you want. Anyway, it's a long topic, but as a proof of concept, one of the things that I did was this sex quiz. And the way that that works is it's keeping all of the data at rest in an encrypted form. The only time anything is actually being decrypted is when the user logs in. It is they're entering their password. That password is being used to decrypt their data at that time. And then there's another mechanism, which I'm going to describe in this application. Anyways, it's something I've called encrypted sessions, but effectively there's a one-time key, which is sent to the client. And then every request that comes from the client is effectively resending the key required to decrypt that user's data just for the life of that particular request. So that we're even minimizing the amount of time that the day that the server has the keys to decrypt the data. And it's just for the life of the request. Anyway, too much detail oriented stuff here, but effectively I ended up spending a bunch of time thinking about how to do encryption when I was working on Quiver. And one of the things that I noticed is that it is a serious minefield in many respects. Understanding what algorithms to use, what parameters to use is very difficult. And understanding how to use this stuff correctly is non-trivial. Java has very, very good facilities for encryption. They've got very good cryptographic tools, but they're not the easiest to use. And even just understanding what you should be looking at and why, especially if you're thinking about it in terms of objectives, right? Like I want to make a chat application and I want the peer-to-peer messages to be encrypted. Where do I even start with that? Right. And don't tell me Diffie Hellman or something like that's, I don't want to understand any of that. I just want to be able to do a peer to peer message and have it be encrypted. And one of the problems that I had back in the day was just realizing how hostile all of this stuff is to people who are not deeply familiar with the cryptography world. And one of the things that is maybe uniquely challenging about that domain is just the sheer scope for destruction if you make any mistakes. Right? You can lose all your data. If you accidentally screw something up and you lose your keys, that's it. Your data is potentially gone if you've got no backups. Or if you do something wrong uh, with the way that you're using things, or again, the algorithms that you're choosing or the work factors that you're choosing, you may think that it's secure and actually it's insecure. So anyway, Temple is effectively a framework which makes it really, really easy to wrap Java's underlying crypto facilities. And it's designed to give you really smart or at least reasonable defaults And its API is constructed around specific common use cases. So, for example, Bob wants to uh, encrypt this thing with his key and he wants to be able to access it later on. Okay. Or Bob has a user account and I want to be able to encrypt something so that Bob can access it, but no one else can. Or Bob and Alice are having a conversation and they want to be able to exchange a message between them and the server needs to not be able to read the message, but both of them need to be able to communicate even when one of them is offline. So kind of a task-oriented API where you say, all right, what what are we trying to do? How many parties are there? Under what circumstances do we want to be able to cooperate while keeping the data encrypted? And Temple offers an API catered to that that is very extensively documented and that will help point out where you need to make important decisions. It handles things like key management, and importantly, it handles forward proofing of the data format. So one of the things that, again, is tricky about the crypto world is that 
the science is always moving forward, right? Algorithms will occasionally, we think it's safe today and then we realize there's a problem with it or a recommendation changes and we say previously 1024-bit RSA key is fine. No, actually now you should be 2048. No, actually now even more should be done. Or if you're using work factors, like one of the most typical things that you'll do, which most web app developers will be familiar with is password stretching, right? So the users enter the password for their account and you want to use something like S-Crypt or B-Crypt or something else in order to stretch the password, make it more expensive to generate the key from that password. What work factors do you use? Well, things are always advancing, right? Because the work factors that make sense in 2020 are not going to be the same work factors that make sense in 2026. The, uh, the hardware is always getting faster, which means these things are changing. But when you're designing a system that is using cryptography, very often it's quite tricky to make these things adaptable, right? Because you have to effectively add your own layer on top of that to say, all right, there's a work factor and the work factor is held separately from these other things. And I might have a new account, which was created in 2026 and an old account, which was created in 2003. And they had different work factors at the time, but both of them should still be decryptable using whatever relevant parameters made sense at the time. And the next time the person logs in from the old account, we want to update their keys to use the new recommendations. Anyway, there's lots of practical matters like this, which again, are not easy to get right. And if you get them wrong, the damage can be great. So the idea behind Temple is uh, make that stuff easier. In particular, it's designed as a drop-in replacement for logins, right? So traditional ring-style middleware libraries, if you want to have like a password system or something, will use something like Scrypt or Bcrypt or whatever to effectively check does the user have the correct password. And the way that Temple will work is it offers a very simple API where you create a keychain for a user and later on you try to log in the user with a password. And if it's successful, you'll get the user's keychain back. And with that keychain, you can do all kinds of things like one-party encryption, two-party encryption, whatever. You've, you've got the object which will allow you to interface with the API. I don't know how much of this makes sense in the abstract, but anyway, it needs to be documented. That's where I'm at now. The library's effectively done. I'm just writing out examples and trying to document patterns and things that I, I've used in the past. And I'm terrified of releasing that one because again, even if you've taken care with something, anytime you're dealing with people's data, like Nippy is tested to death because I'm also paranoid in case something goes wrong. You don't want to, you know, people are using it for databases and whatever. I really, that's kind of a nightmare scenario that somebody loses their data because of a mistake that I make. So I hesitated quite a bit on whether this is something I actually wanted to release just because of the scope of damage that can happen. But in the end, I weighed that people are ultimately probably going to be doing some of this stuff anyway. As I've seen in my experience and with clients as well, it's more likely for people to make a mistake when they're doing something themselves than if they're using something off the shelf. My hope is that we can kind of consolidate, let's say, the eyeballs in one place here, make sure this thing is solid. The code's relatively simple, so it's relatively easy to review. And hopefully once it's at a stable point, we can say, all right, this is solid. You can use this. And using this is probably better than trying to roll your own thing. That makes sense. And so this keychain, you're creating different kinds of public and private keys on behalf of each user and so yeah i guess that means that the whoever's using this library doesn't necessarily need to understand all the different correct so what i've tried to do with um, with the api and with the documentation both is i've tried to get away from the unnecessary jargon and try to highlight the places where you actually need to understand something because i think one of the problems that we have with crypto is that because it's a dangerous field 
there's a tendency to just say, well, you shouldn't touch it if you're a beginner or you shouldn't touch it unless you're an expert. But practically, people often need to touch it in order to do something. They're inevitably going to touch it one way or the other. And to say, well, then, okay, you need to understand all of it. That's also not really true. You don't really need to understand all of it. You don't need to understand in detail, you know, why would I choose an elliptic curve to Fee-Hellman versus a uh, whatever, right? There's details there that don't matter. But there are choices where occasionally, yes, you do need to actually stop and think, what do I want my application to do or what trade-off do I want? For example, word factors is a very core question in uh, password stretching. If I enter a password and... Now we want to make it kind of expensive to crack. The way that we do that is we implement a bunch of busy work, right, in order to get from the password to the key. How much busy work should we do? Well, that depends on what your use case is, right? For typical logins, you wouldn't mind if, for example, it takes 100 milliseconds or thereabouts in order to get from password to key. That sounds about right for a server. But in certain other cases, if you're sticking something away for archive purposes and it's a very high-value target, maybe you want it to take two seconds or 10 seconds to generate the key from a password, right? That's a completely different thing. But it's not up to the library to understand those trade-offs. It's up to the application developer because they only they are going to understand what are the semantics of their application, what is the value of the data, what are the... Uh, how likely is it that somebody's going to try to attack this thing and so on? So one of the things that Temple does is it tries to hide the details that don't matter ultimately. And it tries to highlight the details where you do need to understand and you do need to pay attention. And then it will kind of call those things out and say, all right, here, you need to think about the work factor. Here's some general guidelines and then provide some guidance on how you can come to a decision on that thing without needing to go and spend an hour on Wikipedia or, or reading some sort of crypto textbook. That's the idea anyway. Yeah. Probably a good reminder for everyone to go check their work factor now because you <laughs> might have said it a few years ago and may not be what you'd want it to be. This is precisely one of the kinds of things that I've run into. For the first version that I had of the um, encryption system in Quiver, I started with a work factor of whatever on Script, And by the time I came around to maintaining the code, I'd see that the recommendations had changed. I realized that the way I'd originally written it was actually difficult for me to update the work factor after the fact. So Temple makes those kinds of things easy, and it will just automatically update the recommendations. And in fact, there's even a simulator which says on your particular hardware that you're going to be running, you can say how long you want the key stretching to take, and then it can calculate back from that what the parameters should be, whether you're using PBKDF or S-Script or whatever. And it also, let's say, paves over some of the differences because different key stretching algorithms have different parameters and you can't exactly translate what's a 12 on Script versus bcrypt or something. So again, it's designed to just work, right? It will figure out if you have Script on your system. If it does, it will prefer that to something else and it will tune the parameters to match the particular facilities you have available, something like that. A 12 from bcrypt to a 12 in pbkdf2 would be disastrous. <laughs> yes. Because that's typically 50,000 or 100,000. Again, these are like stupid little things that you have to deal with, but uh, that's things that the library takes care of is that each implementation of a uh, uh, key, key derivation function eventually uses some sort of normalized parameter which scales for that uh, system. So there is effectively a temple API, which will say a parameter, I think it's in the short range. So from zero to whatever, and that will then scale differently for S-Script and for uh, B-Crypt and for whatever. So you, you can kind of understand one number, and then that will be translated for you into different KDFs. Gotcha. Exciting stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us about Telomere. Yeah. So Telomere is, that's one of these that I mentioned, uh, it's really helped having the long-term, like the knowledge that I have a bunch of time to work on this. 
because telomere is the culmination of a lot of long-term work that relates a little bit as well. Some folks might know I've been thinking about exploring a possible monitoring service, observability service for closure applications. And this is something I've been thinking about for quite a while. And I'm coming at it from a few different approaches. I haven't decided yet for sure whether I'm pursuing this or not. But anyway, long story short, I've written a lot of closure applications for myself and for others. And I've used a lot of the tools that are available, Datadog, Splunk, a bunch of, I use them in anger. I hate all of them in one way or another. But it's important to be able to monitor your systems and understand what they're doing and how they're performing and so on. And again, my approach is to kind of think of things, what makes sense to me? How would I try solve this problem? And anyway, the way that I would be inclined to try and solve that problem is not the way that other products or services currently have done that. So I'm exploring what, what would be, let's say, idiomatic closure way of approaching that problem domain. Long story short, some of the areas that that touches on is stuff like uh, logging, performance measurement, event generation, and so on. And I have a few libraries in this area. Timber is a logging library. Again, it's one of my oldest libraries, I think. I can't remember if it predates Carmine or not, but it's old. And Tufty, which is a performance uh, profiling library. Thinking about this for a while now, one of the things that I noticed is that there's a lot of overlap in a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, for example, with Timber and with Tufty. And the overlap will include things like both of them have a concept of a handler function. We're writing something in the code, which is ultimately going to dispatch to one or more handlers, some set of handlers underneath. And the way that we dispatch to those handlers might be something that we want to rate limit. It might be something that we want to do asynchronously. It might be something that we want to do with a buffer, without a buffer. If it's a buffer, is it a dropping buffer? Is it a sliding buffer, right? So there's similar semantics on the dispatch side for what's happening in Tufty, what's happening in Timber. Likewise, we have similar concepts of rate limiting. Likewise, we have similar concepts of filtering, right? I might want to be doing performance profiling only in namespaces that match a specific pattern, or I want to blacklist a specific namespaces, or I want to be able to do it based on a level system and say, traditionally in logging, you'll have something like, I want info level logging to go here, I want trace level logging to go there, or I don't want it at all, just drop it on the floor. Anyway, I was noticing that there were a lot of similarities between the core infrastructure in uh, Timber and in Tufty. And as I was thinking more about this observability problem, like from first principles, it occurred to me that there are yet more similarities on a conceptual level. All of it is effectively boils down to you're capturing information at a point in the code, you're applying some sort of filtering, and then you're applying some sort of dispatch on what you're going to do with that information afterwards, right? Thinking of it in these terms, became clear to me that the way that I do logging in Timber is not actually how I would write something like that if I were going to write it today. Timber was always intended as like a structural logging library, but almost no one uses it in that way because it's not obvious how to do that from the API and it's a little bit cumbersome. So most people still treat their logs as blobs of text, which I think makes no sense when you're trying to understand a running system. We have these rich data structures and closure, let's use them and let's make our logging and monitoring systems aware of those rich data structures and nested data structures and rich data types and so on. Anyway, Telomere is currently an experimental library, which I could describe as a sort of a low level, more generic version of Timber, which would be how I would write Timber if I would write it today. And it's using a new engine, which I've been working on for a few months, which um, I've also migrated Tufty to, and I will actually also be migrating Timber to. So Timber is ultimately going to end up inheriting a lot of the improvements that, that come from this. 
But anyway, it's sort of a more generic version of logging, which emphasizes more the ability to do structural logging, but it keeps all of the kinds of features that already exist in Tufty and Timber in terms of filtering, in terms of handler dispatch, in terms of rate limiting at call sites, at dispatch level, basically all the production stuff that you actually need in order to administer a real logging service. But it is also providing or intended to provide a uniform interface for I'm actually still looking for terminology for some of this because I'm not a huge fan of any of the terminology that people are using. Right now, I'm going with signals, right? So the underlying concept which I'm using is something called a signal. A signal can be an event, like a sente event, right? Which is something like a vector with an ID and potential data payload on it. It can be a tracing payload of some sort if you're doing like a trace through your program or across different programs. It can be performance measurements, So something like the the information that um, Tufty generates, or it could be what we would traditionally see as like log messages, except the way that I'm approaching the logging with Telomere is going to be a little bit different because I want to try and encourage people to keep more of their stuff as data for as long as possible. I have some ideas that I, I want to explore in that general domain, but right now it's at the point where, let's say it's a proof of concept, I'm still cleaning it up a little bit. And long term, my expectation is, or hope is that I want to approach this problem, the higher level problem of how do we make our programs more observable, in particular, in certain circumstances, it's it's sort of a long, it's a long conversation, but there are certain circumstances in which I think we would be able to do a lot better than what the current status quo is for how we understand our running systems. And I want to approach this from two directions. One is from the client side, right? So how does the application capture information? And then the other side is potentially where the service would fit in, which is what do we do with this structured data once we have it in order to understand our systems and make decisions as quickly as possible, again, without needing to be a domain expert. One of the things that I've hated about a lot of the current systems is Just even understanding what alternatives might be viable is already a research project. There are 500 million different applications and different services, and they have vastly different trade-offs. A lot of them are not transparent about how they work. And my contention, at least my gut feeling, is that if we embrace certain reasonable constraints, we would be able to buy massive downstream benefits on the analysis side that ultimately would be a very sensible trade-off in a large number of cases. The way I'm picturing, it's not a solution for everyone. It's not a silver bullet. There are very specific circumstances into which the approach that I'm thinking makes sense. Like I, I tend to prefer simple, smallish systems. So if you've got a huge enterprise thing with 500 different million uh, components and and uh, you're very heavily in the enterprise direction, what I'm envisaging is probably not going to make sense because that's not the kind of thing that works with my That doesn't work with my way of thinking. Um, But anyway, it's something I'm exploring and Telomere will be the first step on that direction, which is what would a closure client look like that would be able to integrate performance metrics from Tufty, do basic tracing, do structured logging in a way where people will actually use and understand the capabilities of structured logging better while maintaining all of the benefits that we've traditionally had from stuff like Timber and the various filtering, the compile time elision, the uh, call site rate limiting, the dispatch rate limiting, and making all of that consistent across Tufty, Timber, and Telomere. So that it's the same interface in all cases, the same terminology in all cases, the same concepts in all cases, and you've effectively got a, um, let's say, one set of ideas that you need to learn that will cover your performance, your tracing, your logging, your events, and so on. Something like that. That's work in progress. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Have you looked much at open telemetry? 
like there's some similarities there and some differences like what are your thoughts on that yeah so i'm a bit peculiar in the sense that a way the way i tend to like approaching problems is to not pay too much attention initially on how other people are approaching things i think inevitably tends to bias people right when you look at what others are doing it kind of anchors your mind and oh that's the general direction I like to go so far as to not even check what terminology people often use for things. Because one of the things that I've really appreciated about Clojure, for example, is my sense that much of the value in Clojure comes from first principles thinking. It comes from Rich working on deep questions and thinking clearly about what are we actually trying to do over here? What are actually the alternatives? And discarding for a little bit, what is everybody else doing? At least that's my impression, right? Obviously, I've got no idea what's <laughs> what's going on <laughs> in there. But certainly the output of his work fits my mental model for how one arrives at output like that very often, which is to break things down into the basic concepts. What are we working with? What are we trying to achieve? What might that look like? And in my case, anyway, once I have some sort of a framework where I feel like, okay, I'm starting to understand this. This is approximately what I think makes sense to me. These are the right atomic units these are, you know, the concepts that I would kind of consider the fundamental concepts, right? Like, what are the units that you're working with? And then afterwards, comparing to what other people have done. Now, in this, this particular case, I already did the conceptual stuff a little while ago. So I've taken a look at OpenTelemetry and a million other products and services in this general direction. What I can say is, overall, some of them are doing a decent job. Uh, certainly, OpenTelemetry, I think, is one of the most interesting ones not least of which because it's sincerely open in many respects, like it's trying to produce more of a, a protocol really than a particular service. It's not proprietary. And I think that by itself is a, is a worthwhile endeavor. But still, there are certain aspects to how we do observation of programs that still strikes me intuitively as wrong. You know, when I was talking about constraints, like I think constraints are one of the underplayed sources of leverage in software engineering and design in that the choice of smart constraints really frees you up to do interesting things. For example, enclosure, right? Saying, all right, our data is going to be largely immutable. That's a constraint. We say, all right, we're going to put some sort of a condition on ourselves, some sort of a constraint on ourselves, willingly, understanding that that limits us from doing certain things. But in exchange, it pays dividends in some other area. And there are a lot of examples of that enclosure where we're consciously choosing certain constraints. And anyway, in this particular problem domain, my expectation is that there are certain kinds of constraints that we could be adopting willingly that for whatever reason, historical baggage, I'm not sure, we're not really taking advantage of and that making smart use of more constraints, I think, might, again, produce dividends in the long term. And one of the pet peeves I have, again, without making this a long topic, is the way that we tend to consider observability as kind of an afterthought. Engineering builds these systems, and if it's a well-functioning organization, we spend a little time thinking about, all right, how are we going to know how fast it is, or if there's problems, how are we going to monitor that, more or less. But at some point, it gets thrown over the wall to some sort of ops department, and it's not up to them to figure out how to monitor all of this with CloudWatch and some other various strung-together set of tools. But effectively, there's a little bit of a disconnect, in my experience, very often between core engineering and the people tasked with figuring out the observability problem. And anyway, it's my contention that if we instead bring more of the design of the observability into the view as sort of a first-class engineering problem, and we adopt certain concrete 
constraints at that time, sort of a data design time, for example, cardinality, right? How much of this thing do we need to measure? Do we need to see every individual value? Can we sample this? Under what circumstances can we sample it? For how long do we need to keep it? And actually putting some effort into designing these kinds of semantics in advance, it's, it's a lot more effort, but in my experience, doing that in advance, again, enables you to vastly simplify the second stage work, which is understanding what do we do with this data to make sense of it, to make actionable decisions, to actually to derive some value from the information, right, from the data. And um, anyway, like with Clojure, see, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to compare myself to Clojure. There's a, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to position that this will be the closure of observability. But effectively, Clojure is actually an important inspiration for me in this, because one of the things that I think is interesting about Clojure it is not the language itself, for me, it's not the language itself that is so important, right? If you have a discussion, you know, what makes closure special? There's a lot of things, but for me, the most important things are about the way of thinking that it tends to encourage, which are not specific properties of the language. It's not, well, you know, we have function syntax that looks like this, or we have an API that has this instead of that. Eh, that stuff kind of falls out of the design aesthetics and the worldview a little bit, uh, but it's the underlying worldview that I think is where the real value is. And that's interesting in a few ways. One, because you can actually hypothetically take that value and move it to another language. Once you've kind of experienced a certain amount of, oh, I get why this is the way it is, and I get the trade-offs that this is uh, endorsing, let's say, you can take that information with you elsewhere. It's, it's not an artifact of the language. It's a way of thinking. And anyway, in the same line of thought, I would offer that the way that we think about observability is wrong. And I think that there stands to be benefits in adjusting the way that we think about observability. And that if we were to consider some painful adjustments, because adjustments are always painful, right? Consider some painful adjustments that we might uncover certain sets of trade-offs, let's say, that offer compelling value that are not commonly understood today. So anyway, it's also a, a, something I'm working on. It's a bit of a research project at the moment, but I'm, I'm going on my gut with this for the moment, which is to say, I think that the way we're doing this is wrong. And I don't think it's superficially wrong. I think it's fundamentally wrong. And I'm trying to understand in more detail precisely how, right? In what do I mean by fundamentally wrong? What precisely feels wrong to me about this? That's what I'm currently trying to investigate. And again, coming at it from a few different directions at once, it may or may not bear fruit in the end. Sometimes you see something that looks dodgy and you dig into it and you're like, yeah, actually it's necessarily that way. It's a mess and it's nasty, but it couldn't be any simpler. It couldn't be any better. Unfortunately, we have these conflicting needs and ultimately when you try to squeeze them together, that's what you get. You know, if you change it, it's just going to be a different coat of paint, but it's effectively the same gook underneath. That may be the outcome, but like I say, my current hunch is that there might be something worthwhile to uncover there by going back to first principles and uh, maybe taking some inspiration from closures way of thinking rather than any specific constructs in the language, let's say. Cool. That sounds, sounds exciting. And I'm very curious to, to see what the fruit of that research brings. Tell me a little bit about the naming of your libraries, because there's this sort of tea, tea theme. Uh, and then, but it's not, it's not consistent though. Damn it. It's not consistent. I did. I did notice that. And then, you know, your sort of overall umbrella, like where does this all come from? It's interesting because I think you're the first person that's ever mentioned that pattern in the naming. 
I'm not sure if other people have noticed it before. I'm sure someone has, but no one's ever specifically brought it up to me before. So you'll notice most of my libraries start with a T, mm -hmm. but some of the older ones don't. In particular, Carmine and Nippy, and I think there, there's maybe one or two others that aren't with a T. Uh, this is just a, a something for fun. At some point, I realized most of them were starting with a T, domain name, the Maven group name or whatever was down in. So... And uh, I decided just as a fun thing to consider it a fun constraint to try name everything from there on, starting with a T. It doesn't cover everything because there were some libraries that predated that uh, that decision. Yeah. And then how are you picking these names and telling? So what is that? Is that a made up word Does that means something to you? So names, I like language and uh, I like naming things. It sounds a stupid comment to make, but I know a lot of people don't like naming things. So I guess it's not a... I've always thought naming is one of the most fun parts of, of a project. But I, I know a lot of people who feel differently. So I guess I'm, I'm weird in that respect. But I try to find something which has some relationship to the task. So there, there's some conceptual... It's not just a made-up word that's got no, no relationship at all to the underlying thing. All of my libraries have an explanation as to, okay, how how does Nippy have something to do with serialization? Or how does Carmine have something to do with Redis? There's an explanation for each one. Some of them might be a little bit obscure, but there is a relationship. And try to do something that's a little bit Googleable. So either that is a unique combination of letters so that there's not a million other things with that uh, name, or at least something where the other folks with a claim to that name aren't in too similar a field, something like that. And uh, basically, it's just it's just a little fun exercise. Do I like the sound of it? Does it make sense? Can I get it to start with T? <laughs> and so on. Again, you you, you find uh, you find any any mechanism you can to keep your sanity as you're toiling away at the REPL. You asked about um, Dao as well. So that name is one I've used for many years. I used that as the name for my consulting company back in South Africa, and that's that's sort of my brand. As it were, uh, the name there comes from a few things. Number one, it's got um, a T-A-O, Tao, for my surname, which I thought was uh, kind of cool. It's relationship with Tao's and Taoism, obviously, which is also, I think, interesting and something sort of a, a philosophy that I've always found quite meaningful. And uh, it includes Enso from sort of the Japanese calligraphy, uh, these, these circles that they draw, which is kind of an idea from Zen, I believe. But I spell that differently with the double S, which comes from my name, because Tausanus is two S's. So it's sort of a mixture of some of my beliefs, a cool sound. There's a mathematical constant, Tau, which forms the graphical design of the letter on the T. And basically, again, just, you know, something playful that I liked the sound of that was unique and that incorporated sort of aspects of uh, things that mattered to me. Nice. That is a very satisfying explanation. I always kind of wondered because you know because when you look at it and you look at your name you're like it's definitely not unrelated something suspiciously exactly yeah <laughs> tempura is your text localization library how does tempura relate to, to text localization <laughs> so again i warn you that the relationships might be quite tenuous and exist only in my own head but uh, in that case the idea is uh, tempura has always been this exotic kind of food item for me and, you know, makes me think of Japanese cooking and so on. And therefore comes to obviously translation and internationalization and so on. All right. Well, tell us about Tempura and what is it? Why would someone want to use it? Yeah. So Tempura, oh, I don't even remember which project that originally 
came from. But effectively, uh, doing translations in applications is a major pain in my experience. <laughs> and in particular, the pain that I experienced very often is when you're designing an application. So for me, the bottleneck in a successful product is always like, what product are you actually building? That's always the bottleneck. It's not how good is the code or you know how clean is your implementation or whatever. It's always, you know have you built the right product? Figuring out how to build the right product inevitably involves a lot of iteration, which means you're constantly changing, at least in my experience, constantly changing. What is this thing called? How do you describe it? What is your copy going to look like? What terminology are you using? Right. That's something that's constantly in flux. And that kind of dynamic iteration that I've needed in a lot of my projects is in opposition to good support for translated text, because the traditional way that you would do a text translation, at least in the Java landscape, at least back in the days, you would have these like resource identifiers to say, all right, this is going to be the title on the landing page, and this is going to be the thing over here, and this is going to be the thing over there. And then you would get you know, this machinery in the background of people to do all your translations. I guess more and more that's automated these days. Anyway, there was a bit of a tension between APIs that are designed to make it easy to industrialize the translation and APIs which are designed for disposable experimentation in your text resources, effectively. The libraries that I looked at at the time included GetText, I think it's called. And that was the one certainly that appealed to me the most for the reason that most of the time when I'm writing my applications, at least initially, I'm working just in English because that's how I think and I want to be able to write and iterate and so on. And at some point, if it ever turns out that anyone actually cares about the application and someone now has somehow become viable to translate this, I don't want to have to go to the huge headache of going back and now instrumenting all of this ability to do translations. So there's a, a bit of a tension between I want to be able to write freeform English text or in my native language super easily, but then also later on, if the time comes that I want to add in translations, I want to be able to do that in a friction-free way without a major migration, expensive migration process. Otherwise, I'm just never going to do it. I'm going to put it off. So uh, Tempura was effectively, again, just me asking the question, how would I do this if I were just doing it on my own? And the way that I came to that in Tempura is... I don't even remember the precise details, but effectively you provide a vector which can have like a resource identifier or something as a keyword, and then you can follow it up with default text in whatever your native language is, like English, something like that, which means that most of the time I don't even need to worry about the resource identifiers, or I might not even add a resource identifier originally. I just literally go straight into the text. And later on, if I decide, all right, it might be worthwhile to get this thing translated, I already have all of the machinery in place to go and I can start injecting resource identifiers. And as people, as I get translations done, those will start kicking in. So for example, let's say you're running a website in Japanese and originally all of the content was written in English. I want to see the English in the source code because I need that context and I'm looking at the code. That's what I prefer. I like to be able to, I don't want to see welcome greeting. I want to see the actual text there in English. And at the same time, if a translation exists for that resource, then when it's running in the Japanese locale, that should just automatically drop in. It's effectively designed to make the programmer's job easier for programmers like me, where they are writing the text and they are they want to write the text. I mean, I guess the point that I'm making is there's, depending on your process, in some contexts, the programmer is not going to be writing the copy. Yeah. So it's not going to be doing the copywriting. And so maybe it doesn't matter whether it's sort of separated or not. But this goes to the same old question way back when of like, should you include HTML structure in your code? Or should there be a separate template, which some HTML author in the other room is going to be doing? And again, that's that's a whole long 
spiritual conversation. And there's there's different trade-offs, but in my projects, for my taste, most of the time, I tend to have my hands dirty with all the things. So I would rather have you know, the hiccup structure there, I remember in live was quite popular, probably, I don't even know if that still exists anymore at this time. But there was, at some point, a philosophy that was quite commonly encouraged, which was that you need to separate these concerns and keep your content away from, you know, keep your text content away from your code, keep your styles away from your code, and so on. I've, again, tended to go in the other direction. And actually, I prefer having everything together, uh, because usually most of the time I'm working with them together. Um, and in my experience, that's often a reasonable trade-off, but that might be peculiar to my situation. And again, different tools, different trade-offs. Tempura gels with my process and the way that I like to work. And I like to see the canonical text in place in code. Yeah. One more that we have sort of touched on, but haven't gone too deep on is Tumbra itself. Tell us about Tumbra and its differences from Java. Certainly has no shortage of logging libraries. So what do we get from Tumbra? I mean... I do know I've used it before, but uh, for people who haven't, perhaps uh, tell us some more. So Timber was my angry response to Java logging back in the day. <laughs> when I first came to Clojure, I think like a lot of people, certainly not everyone, but I think a, a fair number of people come to Clojure without Java experience. I had no Java experience when I came to Clojure. And I wanted to interface with Java as little as possible, but I needed to do logging. And... I had the experience back in the day that, at least at that time, I'm not sure how much of these things have changed. Probably some things have improved. But Java logging can be extremely hostile to beginners when you're just trying to get some simple things done. I just want to print something to the console, right? And I want to be able to filter in this namespace, not that namespace. I don't want to spend six hours working on this problem. I have other things to do. I'm trying to build an application. Like, Don't make me fight with resource files and uh, man, some of the things that I <laughs> needed to go through back in the day. Again, I'm presuming they're a little bit better right now, but Java logging has at least a tradition of being very enterprisey in the way that it's configured. And my thinking at the time was the amount of time that it's going to take to figure out this mess with Java logging and constantly problems were popping up where there was some edge case behavior, which I wasn't anticipating, or I wanted to do some seemingly simple thing I want to be able to just exclude when this is in the value. No, that requires a whole class that I have to write and plug into some ridiculous whatever. <laughs> and um, anyway, it's one of these where I just stood back and said, look, how complicated is this really? We've got some call sites. It's capturing some information. It's going to pass it to some appenders. It's, it's not rocket surgery. It shouldn't be that difficult to do. And in fact, the first skeleton you know, is the kind of thing you can write in a couple hours. It's really not a lot of work. And Temper eventually evolved from that and eventually picked up a lot of the extra let's say, various bits of functionality that people over the years needed to have. And then, okay, what about shutdown? What about async dispatch? What about buffering? What about rate limiting? What about I want to be able to identify a different hash for a call site that's coming through a macro? So there's like a litany of like little funny edge cases that you might not immediately want or it might not immediately be apparent, but that eventually come up when you're doing real production things. And so Timber's let's say, grown organically over the years from my needs and uh, needs of users. It's just, it's a pure closure implementation of basic logging. It's not a complicated thing. It's really not complicated. One of the primary ideas behind Timber always was that you can treat your logs as values, right? So instead of stringifying everything and treating your, your logs as you know blobs of text, you keep your arguments as closure arguments for as long as possible down the pipeline so that your appenders, your, the things that you're dispatching to, can actually see 
the types and the data structures and they can peruse them. And if, for example, you're writing to a database, you can actually take the structural information and use that so that you're not trying to parse out of this, this wall of text some you know sensible information afterwards. And anyway, that's what Timber does. It's a, fundamentally, it's a very, very simple thing. It's one or two macros, boils down to one macro, which is the call site. You give it some arguments. Those arguments go through a filtering system. There is compile time elision or runtime filtering through levels and a few other things. And then eventually it gets passed off to any appenders which you have registered. And then they get to decide what to do with the information. So it's pure closure logging, which means it's easy to understand. You can look at it. Writing appenders is really, really easy. One of the decisions I regret with uh, Timber actually was including the uh, community appenders in the main project. I think if I were going to do that again, and certainly with uh, Telomere, this is something I'll do differently. I would rather in future link to people's work than incorporate it officially into the, the main repo. Because what ends up inevitably happening is people come, they write an appender that has some dependency, they put it in the repo, and then they disappear. And then the dependency changes, and then there's a breaking chain, and then I'm, I'm left... Now, trying to fix these things that I don't even use this yep. thing. I, I've, I've never looked at this library before, and now I'm having to parse through the change logs to try and understand what changes in this breaking release so that I can keep the appender running. And there's pros and cons in that, because one of the hypothetical benefits of Timber is that you can just, you know, there's a, there's a wide range of appenders that come out the box. But uh, with Telomere, one of the things I'm doing differently is I'm making the appender model simpler. It's going to have a really, really nice interface for writing appenders. And I'm, anyway, that's... It's a whole other topic, but I want to make it simpler so that people are less inclined to want to pull something off the shelf in the first place. In other words, if you want to write something that's going to take log data and put it in your database, just write a little function. Clojure already has a wonderful API for writing little functions that take some arguments in a map and do something with it and put it in your database. It's not difficult to do. And that's one of the lessons ultimately with uh, Timber that I want to take to this new architecture is encourage people from day one to be less afraid about just writing little disposable functions to do the things they want. Because if you try to make things off the shelf that solve common problems, what you'll start noticing is everyone has a very slightly different thing that they want to do. And then configuration options start to percolate. And even though they're simpler, I mean, in the fundamental sense, simpler than what you get with Java, because you're, you're just dealing with a data map. And ultimately, it's still fairly simple. Still, you're dealing with more and more options that grow up over time. And I don't want that. I want my logging infrastructure to be really simple because fundamentally it's a very simple thing. It doesn't need to be complicated. And in particular with the second gen approach that I'm taking with sort of the unified Timber Tufty Telomere core, that core is very light and lean and um, in principle shouldn't require a lot of aftermarket off-the-shelf stuff. I think people can just write little functions to do whatever they want to interface with the, the database that they want and so on and own that themselves. It's easy because it's closure. It's very easy to interact with the config. Uh, there's no reason to avoid it. Nice. I've seen something in your projects where you've got GraalVM tests for most, all perhaps by this point. I, you know, I've, I've done a little bit with GraalVM, but I haven't gone too deep with it. Were there any interesting bugs or things you needed to change in how stuff worked to support it? So I am absolutely not the right person to ask about that because I've never used Graal. And I've just irritated all the people constantly using Growl. 
So basically what I've started to do this year, I've had a few longer term projects like re redoing all the documentation, moving them to wikis. One of them was making sure there were ground tests for everything. The original ground tests came from uh, Borg Dude, the uh, Babashka author. Basically, he got irritated that I kept breaking Graal support in various libraries. <laughs> and he kept reporting, hey, you've broken Graal support here, you've broken Graal support there. I think at some point, I don't remember what the context was, was it... It was HTTP kit or some library. At some point, he suggested a growl test of some sort. And I thought, all right, this is great. I'm going to copy this now to all of my other projects. And the kind of testing that I do is very simple. It's got no actual logic in the growl tests at the moment. But basically, just make sure that you can at least import the library's namespace in growl because that already caught like all of the cases that I'm aware of where I accidentally broke something with growl support because inevitably it was something like there was some compile time thing. Something was, um, I'm trying to remember what the most common case is. But anyway, effectively, there's some nuances that you need to be aware of with Growl between compile time and runtime. And there's certain restrictions on what you can do in Growl that you can't do, that you can do on regular JVM, but that you can't do on Growl. And anyway, I've tried to cover all of my libraries now with at least library loading tests. And those have actually been fruitful a few times now because on the odd occasion, I've pushed something that unexpectedly broke something in those tests and then I, I could immediately spot it and undo the damage. And I think uh, Michelle is, is now hopefully not as angry with me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. You touched on HTTP kit, which is not something that you originally wrote, but I think you're now one of the maintainers, primary maintainer possibly. Tell me about HTTP Kit. So HTTP Kit is kind of an interesting story. So, uh, boy, again, time flies. I, I was just uh, checking the other day. I think HTTP Kit, the original author, the last time he touched the code was more than 10 years ago, something like that. And this, this just occurred to me the other day when I was looking into it is how long, anyway, how quickly time flies. So long story short, the context of HTTP Kit was... At the time, this Chinese author wrote H this library called HTTP Kit, and he posted it somewhere. I think it was in the Google group or on Reddit, something. I don't remember exactly. Um, Feng Shen was his name. And HTTP Kit was amazing. It came out of nowhere, and it was just seriously a terrific, terrific piece of work, especially compared to what was available at the time in comparison. It was really a tremendous, amazing achievement. It was short, it was well-written, it was incredibly efficient, it was incredibly fast, and it had a really nice API. And my impression was that when he originally announced this thing, no one seemed to react to it. It, it didn't. He didn't have much of a connection in the community. So what often ends up happening in those kinds of cases, if somebody outside the community comes and showcases some kind of amazing work, but no one really pays attention to it because they don't know who that person is. And, you know, there's so much to pay attention to. It's a natural thing. There's a ton of content all the time and we, we all of us have limited, limited attention. So we tend to pay attention to things in proportion to how well we know I don't know, the person doing the work, something like that. So anyway, so I ended up uh, reaching out to him and we ended up getting involved a little bit in playing with the API a little bit. I think I was working on Sente at that time and uh, I thought it would be a great fit for Sente because it, it had a really, really nice interface for WebSockets and it seemed to be extraordinarily efficient, especially compared to other web servers that were available at the time that I had tested. Um, it was ridiculously efficient. And I thought this was really cool. And I was frustrated that people didn't seem to be paying it much attention. 
So I kind of ended up working with him a little bit just to try and get it promoted, you know, to whatever extent I had any any brand <laughs> to lean on. Not much of one, but what I had anyway. And uh, basically just trying to help out a little bit as I could. He absolutely designed the whole thing. He wrote the whole thing. He He's the genius behind HTTP Kit. But I got a little bit involved in some of the API stuff early on, just as I was, I think I was one of the first major users because I was, I ended up adopting it for WooSoup and I loved it, but there were some things with the API that he was still working on and looking for feedback on. So I got involved in that. Anyway, long story short, eventually he got a new job. He moved to a different place and uh, I think he kind of dropped off the radar a little bit, unfortunately, and hasn't really been active since in a, in a long time. And I think it's a testament to the quality of his work that despite its primary author being gone for you know, 10, 11 years, the project has continued to be viable and to be competitive even today and to be a compelling, a compelling solution. It's got no dependencies. The code base is very small. It's a client plus server. I, I like it a lot. I like HTTP Kit a lot. It's not perfect. Nothing is. But again, if you can imagine... 10 years without a maintainer and just sort of dropping off the radar at some point. The fact that it's still viable all these years later, I think is, again, it's just a testament to the quality of his work and um, also to all of the people who've enjoyed the project and who helped to contribute to it over all these years. So I think it's in good shape at the moment and most recently had some work done to support JVM 21's virtual threads out the box. And most recently, I just added a, a benchmark suite to HTTP Kit. Many years ago, I had a Closure Web Server Benchmarks repo. I had a bunch of lessons from that as well about things I would do differently in hindsight. But anyway, I, that hasn't been updated in many years. And I thought with the advent now of the Java Virtual Threads, I was curious to see exactly how HTTP Kit performed and also Jetty, how they both performed under Virtual Threads. So I thought here's an opportunity. And I figured I'd take a day or two to write some a new benchmark suite and it ended up taking me a week. Uh, as, the, <laughs> as these things inevitably do. But when, you, when you're three days in and you're, and you're thinking, oh gosh, but I really want to stop now, but... I've already put in three days, so I guess I should see it through to the end. And then it's another another several days on top of it. But um, in the end, it was nice to have uh, the new benchmark numbers. And there's something we can use now as a basis if I want to go back to, let's say, um, a more general purpose web server benchmarks for Clojure, which I think would be interesting. But performance, I want to note, uh, benchmarking is a very difficult topic and is a topic I'm also a little bit hesitant to get too close to because... There are substantial reasons why doing worthwhile benchmarking is difficult, especially online. And it is a, a surprisingly nuanced topic to do proper, accurate benchmarking and to understand things correctly. And there are very strong human inclinations to want simple answers to nuanced problems. And people will want to say, well, you know, X is faster than Y or X sucks, Y is great because of these numbers. And then look at numbers which are completely out of all context and meaningless for realistic applications. So anyway, it's, it's a complicated topic to get into well. And um, one of the things I have to do with my work as well is just try to be realistic about where can I make the most value? And do I really want to start getting into the whole performance benchmarking stuff again? Because I'm, I suspect that the actual value from that is relatively low and it, it tends to generate a lot of maintenance work. Um, and so it's probably not the most useful way to spend time at the moment, but we'll see. Yeah, I remember seeing a project recently that was benchmarking comparing its own sort of database versus postgres and you know they had very 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 good results for their own database until someone pointed out in the comments you didn't actually use an index for your postgres uh, yeah. benchmark so yes so th th there's lots of reasons why benchmarking is hard from a technical perspective it's difficult to produce 
accurate and meaningful benchmarks fit for some purpose. But also one of the biggest problems in practice I find is the social issue, which is that if you're running benchmarks and it's normal, it's human, but everyone, the only people motivated to produce benchmarks are people that are trying to produce a specific outcome. So they've got a product of some sort and they want to show that their product is faster than something else, for example. And because benchmarking is quite nuanced and there's a lot of options, how are you benchmarking and under what conditions are you benchmarking it? If you have a desired outcome in, in mind, almost certainly there is some set of specific circumstances that you can manufacture <laughs> to produce that output, to that outcome, right? Yep. If you, if you twiddle with the things the right way, eventually you'll get whatever output you want. And because the details are sometimes a little bit difficult to understand, people fall for it. And they'll be inclined to look at this result and see, oh, well, you know, this thing is 500 times faster than Redis, or this thing is 200 times faster than SQL, or whatever, without taking the time to really digest, well, what, what precisely are we comparing here? Is it an accurate comparison? Is the type of comparison meaningful, right? I've seen cases before where, for example, Teams wants to advocate for some technology that was, let's say technology A was 10% faster than technology B. But when you dig into it, Technology A has a horrendous API, technology B has a very nice API, and the 10% that we're talking about is 10 milliseconds on a request that's taking eight seconds. It's like, why are we, this is not, this doesn't matter. And likewise, when it comes to things like measuring, a, for example, measuring the performance of a web server, it's actually quite an interesting but complicated topic. For example, the HTTP kit benchmarks, which I included there, I've included benchmarks with and without work and with different kinds of work because, you know, pausing a thread is not the same as keeping the thread busy, especially if you're talking about virtual threads. Anyway, but fundamentally, one of the questions is, what are you actually trying to measure? Because if you don't do any work in your handlers, you're going to be measuring, for example, how quickly can the web server churn through these requests, which is going to bottleneck on, you know, certain internals of the web server and also IO and other things like this. But that's not realistic at all, because most actual applications, if you're serving applications with closure, that implies that probably your application is dynamic to one extent or another. Otherwise, you'd just be serving with, you know, Nginx or cache or whatever. If you're doing non-trivial work in your handlers, almost certainly that is going to be your bottleneck, is the work that you're doing in your handlers. It's not going to be your web server. And this is the truth that ends up ultimately being unattractive to people. But it's the truth, which is, well, probably your web server doesn't actually matter that much if you're running an expensive closure application, because if you're spending 100 milliseconds calculating your response, if your web server is doing its part of the job in two milliseconds or three milliseconds, yes, that's a 50% difference. But relative to the total response time of your server, which is taking 100 milliseconds to get a result from SQL or something, it is a completely insignificant difference. And if you're doing dynamic work, this thing that we're measuring might not matter at all. And so, you know, we put a lot of attention to simple numbers because they're attractive and there's a certain human desire, again, to want to see bigger numbers and to say, all right, well, you know, this thing's faster than that thing. And it, oh, it's faster by how much? It's faster by 50%. But really contextualizing under what circumstances is that going to be the case? Are those circumstances applicable to us? Is the 20% actually meaningful in our particular case? Are there other circumstances besides this performance difference that matter? Maybe... The latency distribution is better with the other one, even though its average throughput is, again, it becomes very complicated very quickly. And that, I think, interferes with our inherent desire for things to be simple and black and white. Yeah. So you've been working this year on open source projects with funding from Closure Together and many other people in the community. And NewBank and sponsors on GitHub as well. Thank you to everyone. Yeah. How can people sponsor you? What's, what are your options here? Uh, so 
basically the most convenient thing uh, is the GitHub sponsors, which I've been super happy with. I'm not aware of any specific criticism like why someone wouldn't want to use that. Uh, for example, I used to have some people that would help sponsor on PayPal, and I know everyone hates PayPal. So people only ever use PayPal in, in anger. But I think that my impression has been, because I've been on both sides of the sponsorship with GitHub, giving and receiving, and it seems like a smooth experience. So in general, I would say that's basically the option these days. I, it does, it's not obvious to me that there's a need for anything else. So I'm just sticking with that for now, and everyone seems to be happy. But if anyone has some other requirement... Actually, one of the other projects I want to work on that I've been working on is a, a completely different mechanism for supporting open source software, like completely different. And that's something that would use Temple, the library that I'm talking about here. And I actually really like this idea. I like it a lot. But I've paused it for the moment because I'm anticipating that it's going to bottleneck on me doing a lot of promotion. And I really hate doing promotion. I'm no good at it. And I hate it. I hate it so much. You might notice I'm not, I don't do much of that stuff. I think I, you, the first person I've spoken to in years in, in one of these interview formats. But anyway, that's a project I might like to come to later on. It's sort of something designed for creators and charities and things like this to give them another mechanism to get funding that's outside of the usual like Kickstarter and Patreon. And it's a very different take on that idea. And it was something originally motivated by how can I get more sponsors for the open source work is ultimately that lets me actually do this stuff and do more of it and focus on more of the things like the documentation and the other things which are, let's say are less pleasant right i feel if i'm taking money then i feel I'm, I'm there's more of a commitment to all right let's let's really focus on where i'm going to produce the most value for people not necessarily what's the most interesting to work on anyway so it helps it helps a lot yeah you mentioned new bank new bank sponsors a whole bunch of people in the closure community including myself and to a very significant level, I don't know the total number, but you know you look at the number of people, and I know it's generally a pretty high amount. You see them popping up everywhere. Yeah, uh, so I want to mention that they have been a huge sponsor of people directly, and also closures together, along with a couple of other companies. I'll quickly go through: Ladacora, Rome, Whimsical, Matosin, Pitch, Newbank, Cisco, Stylitics, Logseek, Juxt, Salita, Adgoji, Grammarly. Next Journal, Closure Stream, Shortcut, Flexiana, Toyokumo, Griffin, Doctronic, 180, Seguros, and Crewbank, and then a whole bunch more companies and developers who have all contributed to yeah, to get to that, which is pretty incredible to have so many companies in the Closure community supporting. It really is. It's, it's very awesome, and I, I want to extend my thanks also to you and the other people in the Closures Together organization, because... The one thing is having sponsors, and that's amazing, but it's also this organization of keeping it all running and keeping in contact with people and checking that things are done. And all the administrative stuff that goes into that, I know, is also probably far from trivial. And I just want to say it's really like this This format has really, really helped because it's different. It's different to have the occasional sponsor, let's say, on GitHub, where you say, all right, some people are sponsoring, but they, you know, they drop in and out from month to month as, as they're able, which is great, but it's a little bit difficult to depend on that. So having the kind of arrangement where you say, hey, for a year, you're going to have X amount each month. So go off and do your thing. That is incredibly empowering. And I, I really, on the one hand, want to say I'm grateful because it's personally benefited me. On the other hand, just as, a, as an objective observer, I want to say it's really cool. And I really, really hope to see more of that kind of thing in general across different communities, different languages. I think it's a really cool model. Great. Well, I'm glad that, you know, that was... Uh... <laughs> 
that was what we had in mind was, you know, hopefully it would translate like that to the people who received that funding. I didn't prompt you to uh, repeat those talking points. Those are, it's from you, but uh, that's pretty I'm, much I'm exactly. being held against my will. <laughs> Send help. Yeah. Yes. So that is uh, very exciting. So you've got a few more projects that are still to come uh, later on this year. And Carmine V4. Uh, yes. Not this year, though. So originally, my intention was to do Carmine V4. That was going to be the big project this year. And then inevitably, I ended up getting pulled in a lot of other directions. And I, I was on the case-by-case basis, make the decision, where can I add the most value right now? And um, Carmine V4 will be will be next year. Most of the core is already done, but there's still some some more bits on top. But cool stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you, Peter, for all of the work you've done in the Clojure community over over a decade. What are we coming up to? 15 years maybe it's, it's a bit depressing at this point i think <laughs> yep i know probably there's very very few people in the closure community who haven't been touched in one way or another by your work so i, ap- I apologize <laughs> anywhere it might be relevant <laughs> so thank you for that and look forward to seeing what comes next thank you and likewise daniel thank you so much for chatting to me and also for everything that you've done for the community over the years it's uh that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about the Clojure community is just, in many ways, it's a bit of a small community, I mean, relative to many other programming languages. And there's always that thought that as a group, we're kind of outsiders in a way because it's, you know, it's a weird syntax and it's a lisp and it's a bit of a non-mainstream language. And uh, I think so many people are doing such cool work in the community and, you know, with Clojure Core. And it's just, it's continued to be a lot of fun. And uh, I'm happy that I'm still involved plan to continue being as long as i can it's a cool space to be working in great awesome well this is exciting and look forward to seeing what comes next thanks thank you